devotion to the Lord. When the Bible speaks of learning contentment, we recognize that the learning process is largely concerned with coming to a point in our lives where Jesus Christ is the most important person to us, bar none. This is no insult to the ones that we love. They should not be insulted. Of course not. It should be a compliment to them that Jesus Christ is first in your life. Because if you're first in their life, then you're in a really bad position. Because that puts you in a position of a God, little g, or an idol to them, and you can't stand up to that. You don't want to be first in their life. Second, perhaps. Third, perhaps. But not first. So it should be a compliment to us that our spouses, our children, our friends have Jesus Christ as the first place in their life. Learning contentment in the midst of adversity may sound relatively mundane in the safe confines of comfort and prosperity. But when we're in the middle of misery, it's not so mundane. It's very real to us. Have you ever been deep into the night in the midst of great trouble? in the midst of intense pain of the soul, and you've poured your heart out to God, laid everything upon him, and then as you're gently falling to sleep, you experience as a result of that cry for help the peace of God that passes all understanding. Have you ever been in that situation? Well, if you have, you've also probably been in this situation. And then you wake up in the morning, and the problem is still there, and the pain quickly returns. C.S. Lewis understood this. He wrote, part of every misery is, so to speak, the misery's shadow or reflection. The fact that you don't merely suffer, but have to keep on thinking about it, thinking about the fact that you suffer. He says, I not only live each endless day in grief, but I live each day thinking about living each day in grief. The psalmist that we study tonight experienced something like this. I want to take a look at these two psalms, Psalms 42 and 43, and get a real-life example of what we're talking about when it comes to suffering that's still there in the morning. When we talk about learning to be content in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. Yes, it's part of the Bible, but how does it really work out in real life? It's not as easy as just... Telling somebody they need to learn to be content. If they're in the middle of a difficult situation, yes, that's the theological principle, but how does it work out in real life? And if you ever want answers to life's questions like that, oftentimes you go to the Psalms. Because this is where we see them worked out in real life. The literary unit of Psalms 42 and 43 is such that it should be treated as one psalm. Whether or not they were originally one psalm, or whether they were two designed to be treated together is beyond the scope of what I want to talk about tonight. I'll let the Old Testament scholars determine that. But tonight, I'm going to consider these two psalms together. These psalms consider the reality of pain. And the only cure for such pain is placing one's confidence in God, which in these psalms will be referred to as hope. Each psalm is what is called an individual lament. We can't be certain as to the circumstances that the psalmist wrote underneath. It seems clear, though, that as the psalmist writes Psalm 42 and 43, he's somewhere separated from the covenant community, he's separated from his friends, and he's separated from the blessing of temple worship. We at least can determine that. 
Perhaps he'd been exiled to a foreign land, either Assyria or perhaps Babylonia. But we just can't say for sure. But we know he was somewhere away from the temple and away from Jerusalem when he writes this. The psalmist is going to move back and forth from past nostalgia to present affliction to hope. Or another way to put it, he's going to move back and forth from lament to hope, lament to hope, lament to hope. Have you ever been that way? You're in a very difficult situation and things are really tough and you pour your heart out to God and you have hope. And then just a short time later, you go back to the lament and then you go back to the hope. You go back to the lament. People have asked me sometimes about the idea of walking in fellowship with God and how difficult sometimes that seems to be. I had a call one day from someone a long time ago, and they were driving down the freeway, and this particular fellow said, you know, I'm just so upset. I just can't get over this situation. And I won't tell you what the situation was in his life, but it was one of those really difficult ones. I don't blame him for being upset at all. I would be too if I was in the situation he found himself in. The longer he drove, the more upset he got. And I said, well, have you stopped and confessed the anger to God have you confessed the fact that you're in total despair and poured your heart out to him? He said, I'll call you back. <laughs> so he, he, he did it. And he called me back a little while later and said, you know, thank you so much for that advice. I feel so much better now. And we hung up. No more than 30 minutes later, he said, I'm, I'm just so upset again. I can't handle this. I don't know what's going on. I said, well, have you confessed it again? And he said, yeah, I'll do that. He calls me. And all day long, we went back and forth from lament and despair into hope. Lament and despair into hope. Back and forth and back and forth. And he, was, he almost thought he was some sort of schizophrenic, that it was, it was so difficult for him. As time went on, the periods of hope lasted longer, and the periods of despair lasted in a shorter period of time. But he's not unique. I would guess that everybody in this room has been in that situation at one time or another. It's easy to talk about other people's problems and how they should handle their problems. But when you're right in the middle of yours, then you know how difficult and painful it is. That's the situation that this psalmist is in. He's got terrific problems, and they don't seem to be going away. And he laments, and then he hopes, and he laments some more, and then he hopes some more. He goes back and forth and back and forth. But when it's all said and done, he realizes that the only answer to the problems that he faces is a total and complete focus upon his Lord, a total and complete confidence that God is able to take care of the situation for him. Let's see what this, the psalm says. Psalm 42, this is very familiar. In fact, we sang these words this morning. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Or when shall I see the face of God? Probably better translated. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember and pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. He's probably some sort of leader in temple worship. But have you ever felt that way? I suspect if you've lived more than 18 or 19 years, you have, or probably more than 10 or 12 years. You have felt that way. And you might be able to say this too. My tears have been my food. Day and night, I'm weeping so much, it's almost like that's what I'm consuming. They're consuming me, but I'm consuming these tears at the same time. The longing of the psalmist for a sense of God's presence is clear here. That's what he wants. He wants to sense the presence of God. First, the simile of the deer expresses the intense yearning to experience the presence of God. 
all of us know God is omnipresent. He's ever-present. But that's not what the psalmist is talking about. That's the subject of Psalm 139. Here he wants to experience the presence of God. But that experience of God's presence, according to the psalmist, is not always readily felt. Sometimes, even though we know the theology of God's essence, we know that he's omnipresent, it doesn't seem like he is at that particular moment. It seems like he's so distant from us. That's what this psalmist is experiencing. But the psalmist deeply desires to experience the fullness of God's presence. He wants the complete relationship. He wants to be in intimate fellowship with God. And he wants to receive, most importantly, the comfort that comes from that intimate fellowship. That's what he really wants. He wants to experience God's fellowship, God's presence, because he needs comfort in a very difficult situation. In the references to God in these first four verses, the psalmist longing almost goes through a crescendo. First, he, he addresses God as God, then as the living God. And then finally, he expresses this profound hope that he would see the face of God. In the New American Standard, when shall I come and appear before God? But again, rather, that should be probably more likely translated to see the face of God. But all this has to do with experiencing omnipresence. Experiencing the comfort of knowing that God is right here with you. God is right here with us tonight. Jesus Christ is right here with us. The Holy Spirit is right here with us. In the Psalm 139, David's going to say, where can I go to hide from your presence? Not that he wants to, but the fact is there's nowhere you can go. And that can be either extremely comforting or extremely troubling. If we're doing the right thing and we're, we're where we're supposed to be, the omnipresence of God is a very comforting thing. But if we're not where we're supposed to be, if we're not doing the right thing, the omnipresence of God can be a very scary thing. This imagery of a deer is, I think, one that we can all appreciate. And this deer is going to look for water until he finds water. He's not going to take a break, say, well, I'll take, take a couple weeks off. He's going to keep pursuing the water until he quenches his thirst. And when he does, as far as deer go, he'll do it with great joy. So the psalmist longs for God's presence within his whole being, his nephesh, his soul. He wants to completely experience the presence of God. And we're not talking about some sort of weird, mystical kind of thing here. We're talking about someone that completely enjoys the presence of God and reaps the benefits of that enjoyment. Now, in order to enjoy the presence of God, you've got to know God. You've got to know something about him. But that's what we mean by walking in intimate fellowship with him. Now, you've done it with people before. You have longed for someone's presence. Perhaps you've been gone, you've been out of town, you've been out of the country. Maybe it's been months, and all of a sudden your reunion with a spouse or, or a child is a reality. And don't you remember when you just sat there at the restaurant or at the, in the car leaving the airport, and you just experienced that person being there with you? It's one thing to talk to them on the telephone, but being in the car with them, sitting down at the Mexican restaurant with them after you get back from that long trip, it's just something different. That's what this psalmist wants. This is not dry. This is not some, some sort of dry orthodoxy. This is real to him. So when we talk like this morning, when we talk about experiencing God in the sense of undistracted devotion to God, that's what this psalm is about. It's, it's a synonym. Not that easy to do sometimes, but a synonym. Have you ever been that thirsty? I, I have. 
I've been so thirsty in, in the past that I, there was nothing that would be able to stop me from getting a drink. Most of you know by now, if you've been around me for 10 minutes, I, I grew up in Wyoming. Loved the time that I spent there. Actually, my high school years in Wyoming. I think we're in Wyoming. I think we moved 18 times before I was 16 or 16 times before I was 18. Just, just because that's the profession my dad was in. and He was an oil field lock bit engineer. And we moved a lot. But one of the moves that I enjoyed the most was the move that we had to Wyoming. It was a great t place to grow up. Grew up in a city called Casper, Wyoming. Had about 40,000 people at the time. It was the kind of city that if you ran a stop sign, your parents were probably informed of that by the time you got back home. My first ticket I ever had was given to me by a man that lived just a couple doors down, so there's no way I could hide it, pay for it on my own. If you were rude to somebody in the grocery store or on the road, you probably saw them in the grocery store shortly after that. So people generally were nicer to people. It was just a kind of a quiet kind of life. But one thing that I, that I did was play football there. I really enjoyed it a lot, had a good time, and, and had some blessings to, to be able to play. The coach that we had, a man named Art Hill, I think he's with the Lord now, Art was a military man. And he believed in strict discipline. Since he was a military man, this was in the early 70s, we still all had crew cuts. Even though everybody else had hair down to their shoulder, he, we all had crew cuts, presumably because our helmets would fit better. But actually, it was because that's the way he wanted it. He wanted everybody's haircut to where there wasn't any hair. Everybody looked the same. That was the military coming out in him. And one of the things that, they, that he did was when it came time to, for the second week of two-a-days, he took us all to a National Guard camp in Guernsey, Wyoming. This is Guernsey, Wyoming on the screen here. Guernsey, Wyoming is literally in the middle of nowhere. Guernsey, Wyoming is situated near one of the forks of the Platte River. It has some significance in that the Oregon Trail ran just short of Guernsey, Wyoming. Guernsey, Wyoming is, I would like to call it in the prairie, but it's pretty close to being in the desert. It's beautiful there. As long as you're not practicing football, it's desert. It's really hot in the daytime in late August. This picture I show you, I show you right here is right outside of Guernsey. This is in the late spring, probably late April, May. By the time you get to late June, everything is completely brown. By the time you get to late August when we were there, everything is brown and dry and kind of blown away. But you'd have temperatures of maybe 100, 105, 108 during the daytime, and it would go down to typical desert, maybe 38 to 40 degrees in, at night. So it was a real harsh, harsh conditions, and the coach wanted us to go through that so that he could uh, teach us to be tough in the fourth quarter. And I have to say, we never lost a game in the fourth quarter. We were always, we were always tough because he pushed us. But when we were practicing out in Guernsey, Wyoming, in this desert environment at this National Guard camp, this was before, and some of you remember these times, this was before exercise physiologists figured out that you don't get tougher by withholding water from your players. Uh, I don't know how many kids had to die before they, they finally figured that out, but our coach was old school, and you didn't stop practice for water, you bunch of sissies, you can wait till later. But what that meant was, by the time you finished practicing, you were about to faint from dehydration, from the, from the temperatures and from the fatigue. You'd have been fatigued enough if you were getting water breaks all the time. But in Guernsey, Wyoming, there's, it's very, very dry, maybe 14% humidity, hardly any rain, certainly not in the late August. And we would, we would end those practices as thirsty as you could possibly imagine yourself. And I'll never forget, they had one garden hose. One hose for over 100-something players. The seniors got to go first because they were seniors. 
But I'll tell you what, I, I still to this day, remembering the physiology of waiting in that line for that garden hose so we can take a swig of that water and, and quench our thirst. And as I've gone on through life now, I understand this deer here, this deer that pants for the Lord, that pants for the water. That's the way that this person pants for the Lord. In the same way that the deer pants for the water, in the same way that I waited with anticipation for just that drink of water, is the same way that this psalmist pants for his experience with the Lord. What happened to us? What happened to us along the way? You don't have to raise your hand. Please don't. But when's the last time you panted for the word or panted for your experience with God like that? Like you would give up anything for it? Like you just had to have it? Like waiting in line for it was an eternity? When's the last time that happened? I don't know. It ought to happen to us every day. One of these days, and I keep saying this, and I'm not trying to be a prophet of doom, but one of these days, the opportunities that we have to worship God are going to be over with, either from our own departures from this life or because somehow that freedom has been taken away from us. And you know what's going to happen then? When that freedom is taken away, if that's the case, we're going to stand in line and we're going to long for the good old days when we could worship every Sunday morning and nobody gave us a hard time or every Wednesday night. Or every Monday, Tuesday night, whatever it may be, where you sit down with, with the word and, and you don't have to worry about being killed. Well, for this psalmist, this is a reality, too. He longs for the Lord's presence because whatever it is that's bothering him is awfully difficult. C.S. Lewis described this longing as an appetite for God. Do you have an appetite for God that can only be quenched by God? You know what I mean sometimes. If you, have an, if you are extremely hungry and you know your blood sugar's dropped down, and you haven't had any substantive meal for a long time, who really, really wants to stop at the stop and go and get a Dr. Pepper and some potato chips and some cupcakes? Not really, because you know for about 30 minutes that might quench the feeling that you have, but then you're going to come out of it at the other end. If you're like me, you'll come out of it at the other end feeling worse than you went in because it's going to be a spike in blood glucose, and then it's going to go below what it was. You need a substantive meal. And this psalmist is hoping for a substantive meal. And the further along he goes, his desire increases in intensity. Look at verse 4 again. These things I remember and pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them into the possession of the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. He remembers the times that he worshiped in the past with fondness. These are great memories for him. Oh, that we could go back to the good old days when we got to worship in temple. But those days aren't here for him now. This is a lament. The first four verses are what we call lament. He's pouring his heart out to God. And then in verse 5, he has hope. Why are you in despair, O my soul, he asks? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God or have confident expectation in God. For I shall again praise him. For the help of his presence. So just for a minute, just for a short moment, he realizes, wait a minute. And he asks him, ask himself the question, wait a minute, time out. Why are you thinking this way? Now, this is not something he's asking somebody else. He's asking himself. You've done it. I know. I've done it. What's the matter with you? Stop. And you sit down and you pray and you get yourself right. That's what he's doing in verse 5. Even if, even if it's ever so short, 
Why are you in despair, O my soul? He's asking himself this rhetorical question. Given your relationship with God, why are you acting this way? Why is this upsetting you so much? Well, unfortunately, the hope doesn't last as long as we would hope that it would last. One of the things that we learn from this psalm, one of the things I think that we learn from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when Paul is talking about his own thorn in the flesh, is that problems are a reality for the believer. This isn't something he's just making up in his mind. These are a reality. In fact, to deny the reality of problems in life is, I think, a form of mental illness. And there are plenty of believers that deny the reality of problems in one's life. Or they say, if there is a problem there, you're totally unspiritual. Mental illness, by definition, is not living in accordance with what really is. That's mental illness. And it, to live that way is not the way that it really is. You've got to fool yourself. Listen, there are plenty of fine people, wonderful spiritual Christian believers who are ill, even today, right now, that have cancer, even today, right now, or heart disease, right now. There are very fine Christian believers that will have accidents and have injuries. We need to face the reality. There are fine Christians that will have problems at work. There are Christians that are going to have problems in their marriage or with their kids. These things are reality. The problem's not the problem. The problem, the problem is, what are we going to do about the problem? Are we going to have confidence in God, or are we going to keep going back from lament to hope, lament to hope, lament to hope? Well, it doesn't last all that long. He goes back into lament in 42.6 when he says, Oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember thee from the land of Jordan and from the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. We know where Hermon is. We know where Jordan is. We don't know where Mount Mizar is. Deep calls to deep at the sound of thy waterfalls. All thy breakers and thy waves have rolled over me. Have you ever been in the ocean when the waves are really coming in? And you think you can, you know, you're, you're a pretty big fellow or pretty, pretty strong girl, and you stand out there and you want to just see what happens to the waves? Not so much down at Galveston. But you go out to California and do it, or up to Oregon and Cannon Beach, somewhere like that. And let those waves come across and see if you can stand up. The point of the psalmist is you can't. The water is so powerful. We had a very unfortunate uh, illustration of that last year with the tsunami, that the earthquake and the tsunami that hit Japan. If you saw any of those films, you saw big 18-wheelers just picked up and thrown. Trucks, cars, much less people. Well, this psalmist is just saying, it seems like the waves are just hitting me. It's coming upon me like the country western song, wave on wave. It just came upon me, wave on wave on wave on wave. That's how he feels. So he had this brief moment of hope in verse 5. And then in verses 6 and 7, the hope doesn't seem to be there anymore. Now we go to verse 8, and there's another bit of hope. This, this is so common. That's why most of us love the Psalms. This is so us. This is a so, so much the way that we do things. The Lord, and this is his hope again, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. So he pauses for just a moment, even though I'm getting knocked down and knocked down and knocked down, he just, he pauses and says, you know what? God's a loving God. He's a kind God. And matter of fact, he's going to command his mercy. This is an interesting way to put it. He commands himself to be merciful to me. But it doesn't last. 
And then in verse 9, doubt returns. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As in the shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Has anybody ever done that to you? I hope nobody from your church has. If they have, let me know because it's absolutely cruel. But you know what some people do when other people are down? They tend to pour more problems upon them. They, they revile them. They talk trash to them. That's one of the most cruel things you can do. Discouragement is not a spiritual gift. I know some people think it must be by the way we act sometimes. But nobody has a spiritual gift of discouragement, not in that sense. Now, these are not people who are fellow Yahweh worshipers, I don't believe. These are people in this foreign land that they see him in his despair. And he is worshiping this, and he's in this monotheistic religion, this monotheistic faith, and he's worshiping this God, Yahweh. They have a whole bunch of different gods. And they see him in great despair. And they have no sympathy for him at all. And they say, where is this God of yours? This God of yours is so great. Where is this God of yours? So he is in despair. Now, he comes close here, I think, as the doubt returns. He asks why. This is not a sin. This is not a problem. The prophets ask why and how long. Sometimes we are perplexed. Remember, Paul talks about being perplexed, but not, not completely perplexed. He was knocked down, but he wasn't knocked out. Sometimes that's going to happen to us. And if you get knocked down in the middle of a spiritual problem, it doesn't mean you're a spiritually immature person. It just means that the blow caught you flush on the chin. The problem is not getting knocked down. This is proverbial, but it's true. How long are you going to stay down? Are you going to stay there, or are you going to quit? Or are you going to look to God for the help? Now, the difference between this and my boxing metaphor is you get hit hard enough by a 230-pound boxer, you're going to stay down just physiologically. But when you get hit enough by life's spiritual problems, there is a way back up. And that way is by looking not to the referee in the ring, but to the God who's in the ring and let him pull you back up. Now, if you don't do that, you're going to stay down. That's the truth. Some of these blows are so hard, you're going to stay down. But if you look to God then he's going to pull you back up. So it's not a sin to ask why. Sometimes you can be perplexed. He might be walking a fine line here. He might be getting a little sassy, but I don't think he's crossed the line. There's no pride here. There's no anger with God. There's just despair. He's just confused. He's troubled by the silence of God. You don't understand it. A lot of people have been troubled by the silence of God. You have a problem. Somebody else you love has a problem. You pray about it, and God doesn't seem to do anything. You pray about it the next day, and God doesn't seem to do anything. You pray about it for months, and God doesn't seem to do anything. And it almost seems like God's not there for you. He is. But we've imposed our timing on God's timing in that situation. So the psalmist is just being real. Now, he's not being sassy. This is not being angry with God. You know me. I don't believe in that. That's, a, that's about as, you know, just use the word stupid as you could possibly be. To be angry with a God who holds your life by a thread and who sent his son to die for you so you could live with him eternally doesn't make any sense to me. You go ahead if you want to, but don't stand near me when you're doing it. Really. I don't know any part of it. You can have a lack of understanding. Hey, I've had a lack of understanding in the past. In the present. Lord, why are you going that direction with this thing? Why have you allowed that? Why didn't you do this? But at the end of the prayer, 
my customers say, well, Lord, it's your business. This is your church. I'm your servant. Whatever the situation may be, you have your way. I trust you to do the right thing. So I think while the psalmist is walking a fine line, he hasn't crossed it. But he's in despair again in verse, verses 9 and 10. And then in verse 11, there's hope. Almost immediately he catches himself. You see, you're back to lament, hope, lament, hope, lament, hope. And I think as we go along, the periods of lament are shorter. The, he comes back into hope quicker. And his conclusion is, why are you in despair, O my soul? Same thing he asked in verse 5. He's like, he's looking in the mirror and saying, what's the matter with you? Again, not to somebody else, but what's the matter with you? Why are you doing this? You know better than this. You know the Lord that you worship. You remember you trusted him for your salvation. So what's the problem now? It's almost like you shake yourself. Hope in God, he says, which means have confidence in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. He will praise God in spite of the circumstances. Almost sounds like Job, doesn't it? Even if he slays me, I'm going to have confidence in him. You can't talk me out of my relationship with God, Job says, and I think that's the same thing that this psalmist is saying here. Even if he kills me, even if he chooses to take me home, I trust in him. Even if he chooses not to give me that job, I trust him. Even if he chooses not to heal my mom or my wife, I trust him. Even if he chooses not to heal me, I trust him. Then we move right into this next psalm. I do, like I said before, I do believe that they were meant to be studied at one time. These two together, Psalm 42 and 43. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. Verse 2, For thou art the God of my strength. Why hast thou rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He's in despair. He's upset. He's weeping because his enemy is oppressing him, and God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. Now, there is something that's different from the previous section. In verse 9 of chapter 42, the psalmist said, I will say to God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? We said it's okay to ask the question, Why? It does seem like that you're not answering the prayer the way I wanted it answered. But in verse 2 of chapter 43, it gets a little stronger. Because he's not just saying, you've forgotten me, Lord. He's saying, you've rejected me, Lord. I don't understand. Why are you doing this? Now, that fine line that we were talking about, that you walk with God, and you ask the question, why or how long, like the prophets did. Here, though, why have you rejected me? He's real close to having a pity party. He's still perplexed, but he's real close to having a pity party. And it's, he even is pitying himself. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of thy enemy or the enemy? He's starting to question God allowing the circumstance. And this is where he might have stepped a toe over the line that he didn't want to step. Because he's implying that he didn't do anything wrong. It's very Job-like as well. Job didn't realize he was part of a bigger test, part of a bigger situation. And so that's what Job's complaint, too. I didn't do anything wrong. Why is all this coming to me? He did fine at first. But then finally the despair broke him down. Same way with this psalmist. The lament, again, 
For thou art the God of my strength. Why, is you, why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send out thy light and truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to thy holy hill and to the dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise thee, O my God. And in the darkness of the adversities, there's no other way than to ask God to remain faithful to his promises. That's essentially what he's doing here. Have you ever done that? In the midst of your despair, you pray to God and you say, Lord, you promised me that if I'll pour my heart out to you, if I'll stop worrying about anything, but in, in everything by means of prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, if I let my request be made known unto you, then in, in some way that only you could do but nobody else could do, your incredible peace will come upon me. The peace of God that passes all understanding shall guard my heart and my mind through Christ Jesus my Lord. And you may say something like, Lord, that's what I want. That's what I so desperately need. He's in despair, but he asks for light and truth. It's very possible, being a Jew, that this light and truth that he's asking for in terms of being a leader, he's probably thinking back to the Exodus. Now, he wasn't there at the Exodus, of course. But the Exodus is very much in the minds of the Jewish people. And he's probably thinking back to that time where God led them out of the wilderness, which is literal for them, but is metaphorical later on as people look back to it, the wilderness that they're experiencing. And that's all the psalmist is saying, Lord, lead me out of this wilderness. Help me out of this place. And hope breaks through for the attitude that restoration will come. He can already imagine himself back in the temple playing the instrument in worship to God as an expression of joy as he's been rescued. And the final verse in this chapter and for tonight, again he asks, given what he knows about God, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you troubled within me? We could ask ourselves the same thing. Most of us have been believers in the Lord Jesus for years, if not decades. Most of us for decades. We know God. We've experienced his rescue countless times. But somehow we think that all those rescues in the past have nothing to do with the present. And that even though he saved me so many times before, not just from my sins, but I'm talking about after my salvation from eternal damnation, salvation from the circumstances of life, sometimes we think, I know he did it back then, but I have no idea if he's going to do it now. I've got to tell you this. One way or another, he's going to rescue you. One way or another. His timing may not be the timing that you want or that you have. But one way or another, he is going to come to your aid because you are his child. And because he loves you. And he's got your best interest in mind. There's a part of Godfather, I think it's part three, where Michael tells this other fellow, you know, because your interests don't conflict with my interest, I have no problem with what you're doing. Now, if your interest conflicted with my interest, you don't want to be the other guy that's Michael Corleone is talking to. You know what? Your interests, if you're walking in fellowship with God, don't conflict with his interests. He wants the best for you. Now, just what the best for you may not be what you want. So we need to submit ourselves. And if our Lord could submit himself in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, Father, and say, Father if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. That was his desire. If our Lord could say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, who are we to say anything but that? So as the psalmist closes up, he looks in that mirror one more time and asks himself why he's in despair. Why are you so bothered by this 
What's troubling you so much? You know God, and you know his faithfulness, and you know he's already rescued you from life's biggest problem. And that's not that car payment. And as painful as it may be, it's not that miracle situation. It's not the problem down at work. The biggest problem any of us ever had was the problem that we were born condemned. That's the biggest problem. And if he could fix the biggest problem that cost him his son's life, don't you think that he can fix the littler things in life in terms of perspective by degree? Salvation is the biggest problem. Everything else is slotted in underneath that. So that's why he asks this question. Why are you acting this way? And he's asking it to himself. Why are you disturbed? Have confidence in God. For again, I'm going to praise him. He knows that even though he's not there now, someday he's going to be back in Jerusalem and he's going to be praising God in the temple in worship and he looks forward to it. Like, if I could go back to Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for the water brook. So my soul pants for thee. That's how much he wants to get back and worship God again. In conclusion, there's no indication that the problem that this psalmist is facing is over. When Psalm 43 ends, it looks like he's still in the problem. And I suspect that the problem went on for some time after this. But each time that he expresses hope, we also see at least in a slight way, the easing of pain. God is there in the middle of the night, just like he's there in the brightness of the day. Problems and pain are realities for the believer in Jesus Christ, even for the believer who's growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, even for those individuals. But despair is not the answer to the problem. Turning our back on God is not the answer to the problem. Thinking that he's forgotten us or rejecting us is not the answer to the problem. Confident expectation in what he's going to do because of who he is, that's the answer to the problem. So when we talk about, in interpersonal relationships, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where people are widowed and they're lonely, or where people are in bad marriages and they want to get out, or when people are in marriages to an unbeliever, perhaps, and they think, I'd be much happier if I was out of this, or or whether they're experiencing some sort of religious, I'll call it, discomfort because they're now Christians. They used to be Jewish. They think they need to become un-Jewish now. Or they're Gentile. They think they need to become Jewish. Or they're slaves, and they think, I'm never going to be happy as a, as a slave. The only way I'm going to ever be happy is to get out of this. Or perhaps they're single, and they want to be married. The answer is to learn to be content in whatever circumstance they find themselves because sometimes you can't get out of that circumstance. Well, this is a postscript on what we studied this morning. Hope is the answer. Confident expectation that God will keep his promises is the answer. Learning to be content in the middle of the disaster is the answer. Undistracted devotion to the Lord 